Father God, thank you for your word. And thank you for your spirit. Would your spirit please be active in us this morning? Would you help me to speak clearly? Would you use the words I've got for your purposes? And by your word, in this gospel account, would you please strike our hearts? Would you show us your kingdom and your son? Teach us what we need to know. Amen. Amen. Sometimes the way that you win matters as much as winning itself. I would say that. I'm a board game enthusiast. But, but think of the argument with your friend or your spouse where just being right and winning the fight isn't much use if the fallout from that is bitterness and hurt and a bruised relationship. Think of the politician who comes to power on a manifesto of lies as opposed to the honest, upstanding campaigner. They're going to be received very differently. They are going to have very different times in power. Their their dominions, the countries they govern, are going to be very different. We respond completely differently to someone who is gracious in victory than we do to pride and arrogance. The, The character of the victory and the way that you achieve it can totally change the outcome. I think we we see some of that in our passage this morning. At this stage in Matthew's Gospel, the cross looms large. We're nearly there. It's just around the corner. And throughout the book of Matthew, he's taken pains to make it clear again and again that Scripture is being fulfilled. Promises are being met. And now, as, as we draw towards the end, he says in verse 45, the hour is near everything's coming to a head. In the next two chapters, forgive me for spoilers, but I I think we know the story, we're going to see the cross and resurrection, and it's the climax of the Bible. Christ is victorious. He's going to win. That's where we're going in our Easter series. It's going to take us another month, but that's the direction. But how will he win? What kind of victory is this? What will the character of it be? How is salvation achieved? What will his kingdom be like in the light of this victory? I think these two little sections for this morning, we see something of that. The kind of king this is, the kind of victory it is and what it means for us. So I'm going to take the two sections in reverse order. Um, Verses 47 to 56, Matthew shows us several ways that victory doesn't work, that it doesn't come about. But in verses 36 to 46, he showed how it did. So look with me first at, at 47 to 56, the account of the arrest of Jesus. And ask, how does victory come about? It's not because of opposition. It's not because of the priests or the betrayer's success. They haven't set the agenda. 
It's not victory snatched from the jaws of defeat. Things haven't spiralled out of control. No, there's in fact a bizarre comic irony to some of these passages. Look at it. Judas and the priests probably thought they were calling the shots. They must notice something's a bit wonky. They turn up in verse 47, armed to the teeth, but Jesus doesn't hide from them. It's not a surprise arrest. Verse 46, he's gone to meet them. Judas was this elaborate deception planned out in verses 48 to 49. And and Jesus says, come on, friend. Let's go on with this. They've turned up in a mob with torches, armed with swords and clubs. They're, They're up for a fight. But Jesus isn't having any of it. It's a bit of a circus, isn't it? Something's off. In verses 55 to 56, he says, look, what are you doing? You could have arrested me any day in the temple courts. Do you even know why you've come out like this? Furtive, in the dead of night. It's not normal, is it? No, verse 56, he tells them, they're really not in charge. All of this is happening so that the writings of the prophets would be fulfilled. It's working to God's agenda, not theirs. He's not reactive and dealing with a problem that's out of his control. His victory doesn't come about because of opposition. How does victory come about? It's not by the disciples' strength or faithfulness either, is it? We saw last week that Jesus told them they would all fall away. Uh, In verse 36 to 46, we get another little flash of something almost comedic. The disciples keep nodding off instead of staying up to pray. They're not exactly the titans of the faith that they think they are, are they? And after the arrest, in verse 56, they all leg it. It's not that they're not armed, they are. One of them whips out his sword, wants to fight, doesn't seem to be very good at it, chops off an ear. In John's Gospel, we read that it's Peter. John always seems to be happy to throw Peter under the bus a little bit. It's quite nice. There's some rivalry. But actually, Jesus won't even let them fight for him. That's not the type of victory he wants to win. That's not the kind of kingdom he's going to establish. Look at verse 52. Put your sword back in its place. All who draw the sword will die by the sword. Christ's victory doesn't come by holy war. It doesn't leave a cycle of violence in its wake. He doesn't call us to fight like that. He doesn't need that. How how does victory come about? Well, it's not even by the Son's great power. We don't see the Lord coming to victory through overwhelming force. It's not that kind of kingdom. I think verses 53 and 54 are fascinating. Jesus says, don't you think I could have 12 legions of angels here fighting for me? 
Do I need your sword, Peter? At this time, the Roman Empire had about 28 legions, so we're talking nearly half the military might of a superpower, but with angels. Peter, put your sword away. It's not that kind of fight. Of course, he could arrive as a conquering king. And one day, Christ will return in power and strength. But that's not the victory he's going to win here. His kingdom's greater than that. Now, the real action of this passage isn't in verses 47 to 56. Those are showing us the distractions. Those are the things that don't work. Centuries before, God had promised the prophet Zechariah that his salvation would come about not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. And so the real action, the real battle, is what's happening in verses 36 to 46. How does victory come about? By prayer and in humility, as the Son of God submits himself to his Father's will. Look with me at those verses, 36 to 46. I've found this really difficult to prepare on. They're such familiar verses to so many of us. If you've been a believer for some time, you might have read this passage ten times, hundreds of times. And so perhaps like me, you find yourself almost skipping past it. But if we slow down and dwell on it, there is wonderful richness. Look, look just at verses 36 and 37, and I want to show you three things there. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. First little detail. The place is called Gethsemane, which means the olive press. So in the right season, the fruit of the surrounding vines in this garden would be gathered and loaded up into the wooden press and then crushed for their precious oil. And that oil was used for cooking, it was burnt for light, it was used to wash the dead, it was used as perfume. And, and the finest oil would be used to anoint a king or leader, like a crown. Think of Samuel pouring oil on young David's head, anointing him as the new king of Israel in 1 Samuel 16. It, it represented the blessing of God, the spirit of God being poured out on someone. And here, we have Christ, Messiah, which means the anointed one, praying in agony in the place of the oil press. Crushed by his emotions, poured out for many, and maybe Isaiah 53 jumps to mind, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. It's not an accident that this happens in Gethsemane, the place of the oil press. We're being shown how victory is won. 
A second detail, a second bit of the pattern. We know that Gethsemane was called a garden. That's how John describes it in his gospel. It was an orchard filled with fruitful vines. And, and maybe our mind's eye goes back to another garden. In Eden, in disobedience, Adam ate the fruit from the tree. But in this garden, Jesus is working something better. Where Adam took from a tree, in obedience, Jesus commits himself to being hung on a tree in our stead. It's like an undoing of the failure of Eden. As one who's greater than Adam opens a way back to life with God. It's such a rich image. Even more, we get this funny little detail in verse 37. Jesus left most of the disciples sitting behind. He takes Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. That's James and John. He takes them along with him to pray. They're his three closest friends. And I think our mind is meant to go back to Matthew 17, where he did something very similar. Jesus took these same three men up the mountain, and there they witnessed his transfiguration. In Matthew 17, they saw him revealed in full as he is, shining like the sun. And they heard God's voice from heaven saying, This is my son, whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And Jesus predicts then his suffering and death and resurrection. Here in the garden, the same three men are chosen and called along to witness the fullness of the Son's love and obedience for the Father as he commits himself to obedience even unto death. This is my Son whom I love, says God. This is my victory. It's such a rich passage. I confess, my, my eye tends to skip past this towards the action in verse 47, and I, I risk missing the point. Perhaps it's because I struggle with the emotional depth of it. Look, look at verse 38. Jesus tells his closest friends, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. How does victory come about? Not by mine, not by power, but in Christ's vulnerability. Elsewhere in the Gospels, we've seen Jesus engaging emotionally. He weeps for his friends and he's outraged by disease and brokenness and he's angered by corruption. But, but nowhere do we see him as vulnerable as this. He asks these intimate friends to pray with him, but he knows that as he's struck, even they will fall away. He knows that even before he's struck, they don't share his priorities. They're going to sleep rather than pray. They will fight rather than submit. And of course, it's one of his intimates, someone close enough to greet him with a kiss who's going to betray him. They can't stand with him. Of course, that, that's exactly why they need his sacrifice. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring them to God. And as well as the vulnerability, there is a staggering solitude 
to Christ here. What's clearly worse for him is that the knowledge of further separation to come, that at the cross, for the first time in all creation, the Son will be cut off from the Father. He knows the consequence and cost of what lies before him. And so verse 39, he prays, My Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. And the cup is another Old Testament metaphor. It, it's a picture of the fortune God has in store for someone. It can be positive. So Psalm 23, David sings, The Lord's my shepherd, I shall not want. He anoints my head with oil, my cup overflows. But it can be negative. Psalm 75 has God as judge of the whole earth. 75 verse 7, it is God who judges. He brings one down, he exalts another. In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. And that's the cup that Jesus is dreading. Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. It's good to see, isn't it, that it's all right to ask God to take his hardships away. Maybe you need to hear that. It's all right to ask God to take hardships away. But isn't it striking as well that the second half of Christ's prayer here is that staggering, willing submission, yet not as I will, but as you will. And then in verse 42, if it's not possible, may this, uh, where am I, sorry, if it's not possible, may your will be done. I, I can't even begin to imagine the anxiety he's feeling here. Look at the extent of the weight that Christ bears. He bears that for me. And only he could bear it. He carries it alone. We see that three times he comes back to find his closest friends asleep. They can't even keep watch with him for one hour. The spirit is willing, he says, but, but the flesh is weak and they are flesh. They can't shoulder this burden with him. It's a lonely task. Only he could bear it. There is no other way. That's the point of verse 42, isn't it? Christians are sometimes called arrogant for suggesting that there's only one way to God through Christ. But if there was any other option, if there was any other way to righteousness, this sacrifice would have been unnecessary, a waste. This is the only way. to bring his people back to God. And we see that he freely chooses it and submits himself to his Father's will, praying, your will be done. How does victory come about? Not by might, nor by power, 
but by God's Spirit, as the transfigured Son of, of Matthew 17 is revealed in all of his glory, pleasing to his Father, submitting to his will. As the better, faithful, true Adam lives out righteousness in the garden, so that we can be brought back in and the curse of Eden can be repaired. As the anointed one, the Messiah, is willing to be crushed so that his blood can be poured out as an anointing for his people. Here in Gethsemane, we see the character of God's kingdom and it is so much better so much more wonderful than anything we could have expected or that we would have achieved. And how can we apply this? What would it look like for us to live in a kingdom that has been won by this kind of victory? We like practical applications. So, okay, firstly, there, there is much to imitate here. But we should be careful. Jesus is special. So the challenge and the call for me isn't to step forward courageously and be the humble hero. He, he's done that. Rather, the New Testament writers push us here to, to imitate his attitude in the way we treat each other. Let's look at Jesus' patience with his disciples, even as they consistently let him down. Yet he bears with them. And in his moment of torment, he, torment, he, he waits them mercifully and points them back to depending on the Father in prayer. Can we imitate that heart attitude in the way that we bear with each other? Churches are always going to be full of flawed, broken Christians. If you are visiting and you want to hang around people who are sorted, this is the wrong place, I'm sorry. Other Christians are going to be frustrating or needy or weak and hurtful. Sometimes we're just a bit annoying, aren't we? But can we be a church of people who imitate Christ in the way that we go the extra mile for people like that? Bearing with them and catering to them and loving them because we know how he has loved us. So we can ask ourselves, what would it look like for us to be a church that lived in the light of this kind of victory? Would it change who I gravitate towards to chat after the service? Would it change how I kept in touch with people and invested in them? How I prayed for them or encouraged them through the week? Would it change the types of service that I'm prepared to take on and volunteer for? Or outside of church, how does this example change the way that I present at work? If in humility I'm putting others first, rather than fighting my corner. What does it look like at the school gate or with my friends or family? What would it look like for you to imitate this attitude and to live in the light of this kind of victory? 
Secondly, I think there's tremendous freedom for us here. To be a believing Christian is, is whatever the world says. It's not to live by might or power or to stand in proud righteousness or by iron discipline and virtue. It, it's not even to be a good, nice person. It's to know that Jesus has borne every bit of the weight of my sin and shame. And he's left us clothed instead in his own righteousness. Brothers and sisters, I don't know what is weighing on you at the moment. I don't know what burdens you carry. But rejoice in the victory he's won. May that burden be lifted from your shoulders. And thirdly, frankly, I think we are meant to read this and marvel. To the Roman culture of his time, this would have been abhorrent, a weak leader. But we get to look at it and wonder, what kind of king is this who gives himself for his people and has planned this from the start of creation? What kind of saviour is this who chooses the agony and the loneliness of Gethsemane and the shame of the cross so that people like us don't need to? What kind of a ruler is this that rejects the easy option of sweeping his enemies away with a click of his fingers and legions of angels and instead submits himself to his father's will and sends himself to death in his people's place? Friends, fix your eyes on Jesus in wonder and worship and praise. Let me pray for us. Famously, Paul writes in Philippians, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Lord Jesus, we praise and marvel at the victory you have won. We can barely begin to grasp the cost that you've paid, but you gave it willingly for us. You've paid it all. We thank and praise you, Lord, and we ask that by your Spirit you would train our hearts and minds to respond. Teach us to live in the light of your victory, to be imitators of your attitude, and to live together as a church and to praise you in spirit and truth. Amen.